This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello this is the red box podcast i'm matt shorley now coming up on today's episode a little cracker because I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, was back on screens this weekend. And uh, the sort of nerds who listen to the podcast will know uh, that Nadine Dois, now Culture Secretary, once took part in I'm a Celebrity. So what we thought we'd do is take a look back at politicians appearing on reality TV and ask them why uh, as much as anything else. So that's coming up. We've got absolutely Pat Liner. We've got Ed Balls, Matthew Paris, Julia Goldsworthy, Vince Cable, Anne Widdicombe. Loads of politicians, all basically admitting that there's a certain amount of vanity that goes on with these sorts of things. Anyway, that's coming up as our big thing. Before that, as ever, it's our columnist panel, and it's Friday, so it must be Melanie Reid and James Forsyth. James, I had that horrible uh, feeling this morning when I read your column in The Times, when I realised it's on the same topic as I've written my column on for The Times tomorrow, but I'll be honest, uh, your gag rate is not as strong as mine because you've, 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 tried, you've tried to make some serious points and suggestions uh, about how to solve the crisis, uh, the migrant crisis, rather than just taking the mick, which is basically what I've done in mine. But what's really interesting is that you've been speaking to people in government who, who basically say, you know, while everyone's been focusing on sleaze, uh, you know, is that why um, the polls have been narrowing? Actually, uh, what what keeps coming up when cabinet min- members, cabinet ministers are out and about speaking to their constituents is they are very concerned about the issue of immigration. Yeah, and polling shown to the cabinet there away day last week shows that you know asylum and immigration is now a top five issue for voters in the two hundred most marginal seats. And I mean, the problem for the government is, you know, they said take back control. You know, take back control of your borders. It's the, the Brexit's the way to control immigration. And in some ways, they've delivered on that. You know, they've ended free movement. They've liberalised the rules for high-skilled migration. But every time you see these pictures of people clambering out of these on the south coast, it's very hard to to square that with the idea that Britain is in control of its borders. And you know, this started off as, as a kind of relatively small thing. You know, you now had, you know, I think on Tuesday this week, there were over a thousand people arriving. You know, you had a, a, another record set uh, earlier this month, uh, 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 1,180-odd people. And I think, the, I think the concern is, you know, until you can get a... The, the, these numbers are only going to grow because of the situation in Afghanistan, the situation on Europe's kind of eastern borders. So, you know, how do you get a grip on this? And the problem for the government 
is, you know, he doesn't have any great ideas. You know, they, there was always talk about the kind of Australian model of turning the boats around. I think they've now realised that it's very hard to do. You know, these boats were, were coming from, from to Australia were largely coming from Indonesia, about over a thousand miles away. Boats coming from France are kind of twenty six miles, twenty odd miles. I mean, it's a much smaller journey. It's very difficult to do safely. So now they've moved to this idea of this kind of offshore processing centre. Um, but finding another country that's prepared to host that facility, you know, is really hard. And I think they are. They are I think they are beginning to be stuck on what to do about this. Melanie, there's, there's interesting um, uh, politics around this because the government has made, you know, take back control of our borders, tackling immigration, all, you know, being very, this is all part of the brand. So um, at some point, you know, the fact that the number of people who have crossed the channel so far this year is almost three times the number as last year. Um, there's a real tension there, isn't there, between sort of, you know, the rhetoric and reality. It, um, it was a key pledge of vote lead. It sort of it was fundamental to that whole thing. And what 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 really really interests me is how the, the symbolism the symbolism of it because it's a kind of it's a mockery. It's a sort of reverse Dunkirk, isn't it? It's 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 that it's that sense of all these little boats they're going the wrong way. You know they're 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 sort of. Uh, we're we're uncon- we're powerless to stop. It's, it's uncontrollable, and that's exactly what, um, in many ways, boat leave was about. Um, so, it, 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 to me, it's it's it, it's not funny. It's 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 very tragic in every way. Um, but I also think what interests me is how it will impact on the uh, asylum system. You know, it's a lot of a lot of the, this is argument between. Is there a valid case for asylum for so many of these young men, or is the system truly dysfunctional? And I think that that is something that, that again the government has to get to grips with. The other thing that you highlight in your column, James, is is the um, quite surprising decision by Peter Patel this, uh, this week to link the bombing in uh, Liverpool with what she called the dysfunctional merry-go-round of the broken asylum system. If only we knew who'd been in charge of the asylum system for so long, uh, then maybe they could have done something about it. But that's, I mean, directly linking the immigration issue with terrorism, that's a, you know, you let that genie out of the bottle, it's very difficult to get it back in. Yeah, and, and I think Prince Patel thinks, you know, look, I'm trying to get this bill through Parliament. It's going to almost certainly run into lots of opposition in the House of Lords. And so I'm going to kind of make the case for strengthening this. But, but as you said, Matt, the danger is that voters say what? You've been in office for 10 years and you're saying that one of the reasons uh, that, that the Liverpool bombing hap- happened was, be- which could have obviously been so much worse, but uh, w- was because the, the asylum system is dysfunctional. Kind of, you know, w- what are you doing? And I think this is one of the interesting questions. I think there is going to be a massive fight over this nationality and borders bill. And, you know, will people think, ah, oh, this is this is like Brexit, where the rows that Boris Johnson had, the, the, the porrogation issue, all of those things, they all were saying, seen by voters as a sign that he really was serious about fixing this. Or will people's reaction be, look, you've been in office for 10 years, just sort this out, this problem, or more than 10 years. The, these problems need to be fixed. And I, 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 are they, but are they fixable? I mean, that, you know, this, this, is, this, is, this is a world problem now. Yeah. I think that, I think there is something very difficult, which is if the basis for asylum is that you have a justified fear of persecution, I think a huge number of people in Afghanistan right now would fit, would fit that box far more than the rest of the world is prepared to accommodate. 
And I think that that is a problem. I also think, to my mind, it, it, it's very telling that Poland, when it was dealing with the, the kind of Belarus's attempt to kind of weaponize the migration issue, you know, banned the media and banned NGOs. I think I think if you were to study up close what Poland has done in the last few weeks, um, I think it's very hard to believe that Poland has fully complied with its international obligations mm. all the way through that period. But you know, said against that, you could argue that the, the, the polls have succeeded. That you know, they're now flights going from Belarus, taking these people back to Iraq because um, it, people have realised that you're not going to get over this border. So I think this is this is such a difficult kind of moral and philosophical quandary, which is, you know, were the polls justified in essentially saying, look, this is this is an attempt to 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 distort the international system. So we are not going to be feel obliged by all these conventions and we're going to push these actively push people back, you know, throw them back across the border if they make it over. Or you know, is it wrong for them not to have followed not to have followed um treaties that Poland is signed up to? It's an interesting question, and I genuinely don't know the answer. I'm not making a, a, a stupid point, which is unusual for me. But do you think that we would have had more chance of sorting out the channel issue if we were still in the EU and therefore it was a sort of an e, the EU would bang heads together between Britain and France, but also, you know, countries that border France, you know, because because of Schengen, you know, that is a that is a problem as well. That people arrive in another European country and make their way to France. So there's lots of does it is it perversely harder for us to get that agreement because we left and everyone's a bit like, well, you left is your problem. You know, the problem washes up on your shores now, nothing to do with us. Yeah. And we're, and we're also outside the Dublin Convention, which allows you to say to send people back to the the first, con- the first safe country in which they should have claimed asylum. So that has undoubtedly complicated matters. I think there is, I mean, I, I, think, I, think, I think there is also a problem, which is you know, the French government will never care as much about people leaving its territory as the UK government does about people entering it. And I think that the UK has long had this view that, you know, that, that France shouldn't like the magnet effects that the kind of Channel Coast has. But I think, I think, there is, I think you can't get around the fact that the, you know, ultimately these people are leaving French territory, but entering UK territory. But I think you are right. You know, if, this was, if the UK was still in the Dublin Convention, um, it, 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 you know, more than five people would have been returned to Europe this year, which is all, all that's happened according to the Home Office. And only five people have actually been sent back to Europe. Well, we'll see if... Uh, um, uh, I mean, it seems to me the only thing that, that Peter Patel's capable of doing is, is briefing daft stories and putting out press releases, but we'll see if that, that changes. We'll see if that changes. Um, let's turn our attention to Nadine Doris, not because uh, of her going on um, I'm a Celebrity. We'll deal with that later on. Uh, but she's um, been uh, talking about social media and saying it's been hijacked by left-wing activists and that people are now afraid to say what they think for fear of being cancelled. Do you live in that fear, Melanie? I'm always very careful on social media. I I don't, I don't, certainly don't. uh, I go very warily. I'm not wildly active and I would not like to be terribly monstered. And I imagine if for someone like her, I think, I mean, she's, she said some pretty unwise. She's tweeted some pretty unwise stuff herself. I think in the past, you know, she she has she's preaching for us to be to be nice and kind to people now. But she hasn't exactly been always terribly nice herself in the past, has she? No. And in fact, um, only this week she was. What was it? She was tweeting to Laura Koonsberg. She was unhappy about something. Um, she was she was sort of casting doubt yeah. on a on a source that. Um, 
Well, here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Here we are. She, she rebuked her for. Um, yes, Laura Coonsberg tweeted saying uh, that a Tory MP had seen Boris or said that Boris Johnson's authority was evaporating, and he looked weak and sounded weak at a meeting of backbenchers. And then uh, the Dean Joyce replied on Twitter, Law, I very much like and respect you, but we both know that text is ridiculous. Although nowhere near as ridiculous as the person, obviously desperate for your attention, who sent it. Mm. Um, and then is, she deleted it. She then deleted she? it because, um, you know, as the culture secretary, uh, she is, you know, responsible for the ultimately the sort of regulation and the, the framework in which the BBC operates. Uh, and uh, she's insisted she's not using her financial power of the BBC to put pressure on the broadcaster's news coverage. It's all a bit of a mucky old mess, that, isn't it? Maybe it would just be better if everyone just got off social media. Uh, Well, absolutely, but it's it's never going to happen. And what interests me is that she... she, I mean, Nadine Dorries is is interesting. I mean, she's a northern powerhouse in herself. (laughs) You know, she is she is this she's a sort of embodiment of of uh, of leveling up isn't she and 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 i don't i don't see i don't i don't mean that in any way in, in a snobby sense she's she brings this this sort of energy this and because i mean to think she comes from a journalistic background doesn't she so she's a journalist you should you, we should never be held to account to to say that we believe in what we wrote last week we always change our mind we we're always saying different things so you know You've got you've got to give her a bit for her energy. You've got to you've got to give her a lot of of, of credit. Um, and I, it's it's very interesting to see how she is knocked down and and diminished by people. Uh, she is very similar to Pretty Patel in that in that regard. She is she's not she's she's and and she is a victim on social media to some extent herself. And she and she points out, she, yeah, she says that she thought some of it was quite misogynistic. There were some of the responses to mm. her, uh, um, you know, she said that uh, comedian Dom Jolly said it was like the result of some drunk bet when she was appointed. Although, I mean, you could say the same thing if the job had gone to Gavin Williamson, I suspect. Uh, <laughs> James, what, what what do you think about this? Is it, Nadine Doyle says she isn't fighting a cult. She's not going to charge out on a culture war battle, but she she is slightly prone to doing that, isn't she? I, I thought, as you said, the, the, the tweet to Laura Koonsberg was ill-advised. I mean, I think, first of all, I think for cabinet ministers to start arguing with um, journalists on Twitter about uh, about the, their tweets is, is, is not a good look. And I think it's particularly not a good look, as you say, Matt, when you're the culture secretary, there's a BBC licence fee negotiation coming up. It, it just it, it doesn't sit right, I don't think, um, as, as, as something to do i think on the on the culture wars front i always think one of the things that i think intrigues me about the way that boris johnson approaches them is his strategy is to essentially wait for the other side to to overreach itself um uh before before uh saying anything so someone said to me that those rows about statutes you know um when people were talking about taking down clive of india um boris johnson was very quiet but as soon as they went for churchill you know he then wades into the debate and that, that's a point position in which i suspect you know over 70 percent of the country would agree with him and i think that is that is the kind of way he likes to do this culture war stuff which is wait until the other side goes so far that you can then say uh, <laughs> and, and most people are like well yeah yeah, kind of taking down Churchill seems a bit excessive. Um, I mean, that I think is 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 his preferred mode of engagement in these cultures. I'm just not sure. Does it make that much difference ultimately to to pop, maybe just just uh, you know Nadine saying that Twitter's too left wing 
um, maybe she's just following the wrong people, or maybe the left wing <laughs> people are uh, maybe they're the ones who have a go at her. But then, I'm sure if you spoke to Jeremy Corbyn, he probably thinks Twitter's too right wing. Um, you know, it's just the, the it's just a, well, it's just a it's just a cesspit, probably. I think if you look, I think I think if you if you do do Twitter by the numbers, I think it definitely skews to the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think um, I mean, I think you. Do. Um, so I think that's it. I think you're right, Paul. You could well be right. You could well be right. But let's not fall out about Twitter. Let's not fall out about Twitter. Have either of you ever thought about or been asked to go on a reality TV show? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you should go on one. I think you should go. Matt, Matt surely for, for the next one. Which one? I'm not signing up uh, to anything that involves um, nudity. <laughs> So no Love Island. No, but, no. I think my Love Island days may well be past me. I'm afraid. Really. But I do think you should go on a reality. You, you, you have, you have it. You have it, Matt. You should go on one. James Forsyth and Melanie Reid there, and you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's I'm a politician. Get me in there. 
Parliament was on recess and I didn't miss any government votes. So uh, the fact that it was presented via um, a different lens and that I'd gone AWOL from Westminster was a bit awful. But, you know, I'm a politician. I'm used to that. That's just kind of like how it is when you're in politics. The second worst bit, worst bit was when I was buried underground in a coffin. The lid was screwed down and 35,000 bugs came down to shoot to join me. The bugs weren't the problem. The problem was the drill, drilling the coffin lid on. And then the person doing the drilling, hearing his footsteps walk away on the land over my head. That moment of claustrophobia was pretty difficult. But I did, she says, whispering, managed to do it for longer than Helen Flanagan. So I don't think since we did that trial, actually they've done it again on I'm a Celebrity. So that they were the worst bits, but the good bits were just everything else, the bonding and even the starving, because, you know, they really don't feed you. I think for maybe four days, we had like 25 beans in the palm of our hand each day, each. And that was pretty tough. And I know some people think, oh, it's just all television, you know, and it's kind of like it's, it's presented to make good TV. It kind of isn't. You really do starve. And the group of us, the team of us together, going through that unique starving deprivation, it kind of does something. It forges your friendship in a way that probably accelerates it by, like, I don't know, 10 years or something. The whole thing was fantastic. Does it affect your life? as an, Would it affect your job prospects as an MP if you did reality TV? Well, I think you'd have to pick your moments. You'd have to kind of probably announce that you were going to do it these days. Or make sure it got leaked so, you know, all the all the outrage, which, you know, the social media and the airwaves are full of today would be kind of like over and done with maybe before. Oh, I mean, that's probably a, a, a wish. But that's, you know, some of it was done in a more controlled way. Mine was completely a shock to everybody. And that kind of added to it, I suppose. And, um, well, you know, so so it was, what, nine, ten years ago now? You're still asking me about it. And I'm now the Secretary of State for the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. So does it, you know, impact on your career? Well, I think I'm probably testament to the fact that the answer to that question is probably no. Uh, that was Nadine Doyce, the Culture Secretary, uh, sending us a note on uh, why she did uh, <laughs> I'm a Celebrity. Uh, she was the first contestant to be voted off the show uh, back in 2012. Um, and it is worth pointing out, she, she, did, she did have the whip suspended. Uh, but uh, then then she got it back, back in the toy party. Now she's in the cabinet. That's how things uh, turn out. So all of this got us thinking about the other politicians who've tried their hand at reality TV, either to raise their profile or rehabilitate their reputation. Now, don't worry, we're not going to revisit George Galloway in the Big Brother house. Now, would you like me to be the cat? No, George, we don't. Uh, so instead, let's go back to perhaps the first MP to try their hand at reality TV, the now Times columnist... Matthew Paris. Back in 1984, he was the MP for West Derbyshire. He spent a week in Newcastle trying to live on the dole for an episode of ITV's World in Action. But it didn't go very well. Here he is trying to explain his budgeting priorities. When I decided to have the television, I thought it was a bit of a luxury. As the week's gone on, I find it less and less of a luxury. There isn't much else to do. There isn't much else that I can afford to do. Was your... World in Action. Was that the sort of the first time that politicians had done something on the TV that wasn't? Um, yeah. You know, um, 
One of the reasons my World in Action week on the dole in Newcastle made such a splash was that, so far as I know, no politician had ever done anything like this before. Plenty had been interviewed, plenty had been taken to to um, talk to poor people uh, in front of the cameras, but, but no one had tried living for a week on, on the dole. So I think people were struck and, and fascinated by it, though at the time Margaret Thatcher didn't want me to do it, and I ended in a way with egg on my face because I ran out of money before the end. The consensus as time went on was that it had been a brave thing to do and a useful thing to do. And it was, I think, the first of its kind. There's probably a thread that runs from you doing that to sort of Nadine Doris in the Army Celebrity Jungle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've urged the Chancellor to change course. In recent months, the IMF have told him to change course. The economy Former Shadow Chancellor Ed Ball's appearance on Strictly Come Dancing transformed him into a genuine celebrity. He's now a TV presenter and author. Once known as a bit of a bruiser, he explained how reality TV has changed people's opinion of him. I remember talking to Natasha Kleplinski about this, who said to me, 17 years on from winning Strictly, the first thing most people will say to her is, you were good on Strictly. <laughs> and there's something about that show which means you never really escape. And so uh, most often people will yell, keep dancing. <laughs> uh, and, um, and I also still get the, um, you know, I used to hate you. Yeah. And, and now I like you. It's interesting. We did, we did a, uh, an event at Cheltenham about per- personality in politics and the role it plays. And it clearly does play a role in part of the appeal. And your name came up as someone who people didn't like when you were a politician. You were seen as quite serious. There was the, you know, the bruiser and all of that. And then you were only allowed to actually have your own personality when you stopped being a politician. Do you feel like that? I think there's a really thick piece of glass between um, the public and people in politics and that's partly to do with how we see politicians it's partly to do with how politicians behave and it just means you never really see through it's always refracted and weird and cloudy and um i don't think i've really changed i mean you know I'm bound to have changed a bit, but fundamentally, most people know we were saying how- the enormous entourage that you've brought with you and the, the demands of the rider for, to come on Times Radio was outrageous. Oh, no. no, and to be quite honest, Jack Daniels was not what I asked for. I am not against Culling Deer. What I am against. Ed Balls isn't the only one to go on Strictly, of course. Former Cabinet Minister Anne Widdicombe took political involvement on reality TV to the next level paving the way for ex-politicians to remake their public image on the small screen. In 2010, she and Anton Dubeck won the support of Strictly Come Dancing viewers, despite terrible scores from the judges. It was all a bit local authority, darling. <laughs> Slightly tankish. I was extremely concerned for Anton's health and safety, darling. So why did you decide to do Strictly Come Dancing? Well, I turned them down every year since 2004. Every single year they came to me, and every year I said, no, go away. But the difference was that in 2010 I retired. So quite suddenly I no longer owed anybody any duty of time or dignity, and there was no clash between doing a reality programme of that demanding a nature uh, and being an MP. Uh, So why did I do it at all? Because I thought it would be fun, which it was. Uh, because I thought that if things went really wrong, it didn't matter because I'd retired. Uh, so that was really my motivation, to have fun. Well, you certainly made an impact, uh, partly with Anton Dubeck. 
and you went on to become the sort of comedy couple. Do you think you played up to that? Oh, absolutely. I'm from a very early stage. I, I Very early in the process, Anton said to me that the less time I spent with my feet on the floor, the better. Uh, so we did things like lifting and spinning and dragging and even flying at one point. Uh, so um, we knew we had to go, we, that we couldn't compete on the basis of competence. And if I tried to, I would have been out, I think, in the first couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but instead, we decided to go for family entertainment. You've done quite a few of these shows. You did sort of Celebrity Fit Club as long ago as 2002. Antiques Road Trip you've done, uh, and then even entering the Celebrity Big Brother House. That strikes me as a altogether, that's, that's you know, strictly as one thing. The Big Brother House seems like quite a, a commitment. Big Brother was a, a, a very big commitment. And again, they were people whom I had turned down quite regularly and indeed had said to my agent, look, don't bother putting it to me. I really don't want to do Big Brother. I don't like it. I think it's voyeuristic, etc., etc." But then in 2018, what happened was they said, well, they were uh, going to do um, a special programme to celebrate a um, uh, hundred years of, of women having the vote. And it was going to be called Big Sister, which it wasn't in the end. Uh, and it was going to be focused on having intelligent women and, and, and debates. And I said to my agent, I don't believe a word of it. And he said, and he made this, which was the final conclusive argument. He said, well, if you don't enjoy it, you're not in the jungle. You're in Elf Street. You just walk out. Uh, and you didn't walk out. You went all the I way and you, you were the runner up. Indeed, I was. Uh, I'm told that the production team all thought I was going to walk within the first week. And there were times when I thought I might be walking within the first week. Uh, but then my competitive instincts kicked in. Uh, and uh, after that, I wanted to stay in. And did you, I mean, it's fair to say that if people go on strictly, whatever they've been known for before, they essentially do the dancing and that's, you know, the be all and end on are you any good at dancing? Big Brother, you're more judged on you as a person and it's fair to say there was some controversy about some of the, the views you expressed uh, about, um, uh, I think, about abortion, about uh, same-sex marriage and that sort of thing. Uh, and you know, you, yeah. Capital punishment too. Yeah. Is that a different thing when you suddenly... Maybe, maybe that's more like politics actually being in the Big Brother house because you're being judged on your own views and then people vote on them. Oh, yes. I mean, when you're in the Big Brother house, you can't pretend to be anything other than you are because I'm in your own camera 24 hours a day. And I do mean 24 hours a day. They can film me while you're sleeping. Uh, so, I mean, there is no way that you can pretend to be anything different. Um, you're very much yourself. And I think... What appealed to people and why I was kept in so long on Big Brother was that whether or not they agreed with me, um, they did believe in freedom of expression. Uh, and in a way, a vote for me was a vote for, uh, for freedom. We in the Liberal Democrats were right about the financial crisis. We warned of the day. Vince Cable, who was the Lib Dem the business secretary the in the coalition cabinet at the time, hoped to appear on Strictly 2 but he wasn't allowed. But he managed to include himself instead on the 2010 Christmas special, Dancing the Foxtrot. So I need been obviously a long time uh, a keen ballroom dancer, but you were also in the cabinet. So uh, presumably it was quite difficult for you to take part in the, in the real Strictly. Um, 
well, yes, it, it was. It was a bit un, a bit controversial, and there was a certain amount of tut-tutting um, amongst my colleagues, um, and which may have been inspired by jealousy, but may have been inspired by a sense of propriety. But n- nonetheless, I I sort of grabbed the opportunity, um, and I hadn't been a complete stranger because I'd um, I'd been asked to dance with Alicia Dixon on the um, late night show um but um dancing on the proper strictly for the at least one episode the christmas show was um was a built out of the blue but i i'm afraid i didn't have any hesitation i thought it was a you know great thing to do and and, and i did it well yeah i mean not only was did was it a fun thing to do you were partnered with erin boag you danced a foxtrot got 36 out of 40 including a 10 out of 10 from head judge len goodman Yes, that's been top of my CV ever since, actually, that episode, <laughs> yes. But it was um, it was actually quite fraught because um, the, the rehearsals took place in the middle of all the dramas around tuition fees and my uh, interaction with um, the Murdoch Empire and, and various other things. So it was quite a fraught time. Um, and it wasn't totally straightforward because, you know, even just doing one dance, um, you require a lot of practice. You need to be physically very fit. I, I soon realized when I got into lifting Erin that my back wasn't in a great state. Um, but anyway, I got through it. And, um, you know, the event itself, I was sort of carried along by the uh, cheering of the crowds. And I, I had my uh, my wife and my daughter, among others in the audience, cheering me along. So it was it, it turned out fine. And did you, because you'd obviously been uh, ballroom dancing for some time, were you surprised, was it much harder than you expected beyond the, beyond the lifts? Um, yes, it, it, it was hard. I mean, I, I've, I've done, um, you know, I'd done it for many years. I started dancing with my late wife when our kids grew up and we wanted recreation and then to keep us motivated. Um, so we'd done all the exams, but actually dancing under pressure in a, competitive environment uh, is quite different um, and I, I discovered in the dress rehearsal I broke down about three or four times uh, that holding your nerve in that kind of environment is, is the big challenge. And you've always, you know, you've been a high profile politician uh, in and out of the Commons a couple of times. Have you been offered other reality TV shows along the way? Well, I've been offered, but I, I decided n- not. Well, I did. I did one actually, which was called Big Star, Little Star, and it was. It turned out to be rather cringe-making uh, and embarrassing. I went on with my grandson, um, and after that, I I thought there's a limit to the extent to which you go through making fun of a fool of yourself and being humiliated in the public interest. Uh, um, I decided to draw a line under it at that point. Uh, Vince Cable there, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats, talking about uh, not making a fool of himself. Well, luckily, plenty of other politicians are happy to make a fool of themselves. Let's wind the clock back to 2006, when the newly elected Lib Dem MP Julia Goldsworthy introduced as Shadow Chief Secretary of the Treasury on Channel 4's The Games, which you don't need me to remind you, saw celebrities take part in Olympic-style sports events. people who can't remember the games uh what was it and why did you as a relatively new mp end up on it so it was a reality television program that probably ran for about three or four series in maybe like 2005 to 2010 ish um that basically got celebs to do 
10 different kinds of sports and compete against each other over a couple of week periods. And I think the reason why it probably didn't last as long as some of the other reality television formats is that it was probably quite expensive to do all of those outside broadcasts over the course of a couple of weeks. And it, it, essentially, for legal reasons, the podcast, it's essentially the Olympics, isn't it? It's, it's Celebrity Olympics. <laughs> uh, and you, uh, the women competing in white water kayak, hurdles, cycling, gym floor, swimming, curling, archery, hammer, and the 100 metres sprint. Yes. You, uh, had only, so you took part in 2006, um, having only That's been right, elected yeah. uh, the year before. What made you do it? What made you think, I know what's going to establish myself as a political heavyweight? <laughs> Um, I'm well, going to put on a leotard and go and compete in the Olympics with um, a group of... Uh, Peter Duncan from Blue Peter, uh, somebody from uh, the boy band Damage, and Amanda Lamb from A Place in the Sun. Don't forget Bernie <laughs> Nolan as well. He oh, was Bernie Nolan, lest star. we forget, lest we forget. Um, so it was one of those things. It, it came in, the email came in before Christmas in 2005, um, and you kind of think, oh, it sounds quite interesting. I really enjoyed sports at university and at school. And I thought, you know, amazing opportunity. You basically get national level quality coaching in some of these sports. I thought it'd be really interesting just to try out those sports, if nothing else. But also you think, uh, here's interesting email, 90% chance it's not going anywhere. So kind of you kept getting a little bit more information and still being a bit sceptical, really, that it was going to lead anywhere. And then suddenly you get into the new year and you're into training and I think it was just after I'd accepted I said yes okay I'll do it that uh, we had the kind of infamous George Galloway cat impression on Celebrity Big Brother and when I was watching that I did at that point think oh my god what have I let myself in for um but there was like I did attach some conditions to it really before I did it so I thought you know as a new MP you think well actually this could be quite good for profile um I think you know, thinking about all the stuff in the news today about second jobs, it's really important that MPs take the job seriously, but that doesn't mean you have to take yourself too seriously. So for me, it's like, I'll do it, but um, it's not going to take me away from my important either constituency or parliamentary work. So parliamentary work and constituency work always took priority over any of the training sessions. So it did mean that there were some sessions that I missed I think I ended up you know, having to dash up to Sheffield after the budget in order to do some of the competing. So it never felt like I was prioritising that over the most important job, but there was space to have a bit of fun. And it was the most fit I think I've ever been in my entire life. We cannot accept a deal at any cost. We cannot accept a deal that would compromise... Sticking with sports money, and in 2014, current trade minister Penny Mordaunt appeared in the sadly short-lived ITV show Splash, where she tried and failed to master the art of diving with Tom Daly. I'm, I'm very pleased about that. I think that, that clip should only ever be uh, played on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but no, I'm I'm very pleased to say um, because I I I did that for my local Lido, uh, which has now been uh, renovated and um, is uh, is back in action and hopefully will be um, a beneficiary of a, a levelling up fund bid. Um, and uh, was uh, you know all, I'm always uh, happy to sit in a bathtub of baked beans for a good call. So. <laughs> You don't have any your eye on anything else, Mars Singer, Strictly, anything like that. 
No, I mean, after Splash, unbelievably, um, following my um, paving slab style, <laughs> I an enormous amount of offers to do all sorts of programmes, um, which I, uh, I declined to do. What was, um, the, what was the maddest thing you were asked to do? Oh, um, all, all, all sorts of things. I shan't embarrass the programmes, but they generally tended to be sort of uh, uh, where I would be uh, um, sent to an island uh, by myself for uh, um, six months with uh, no, no supplies um, uh, uh, and uh, only a penknife for company. That's that sort of thing. And that is that if this debate so far has served one purpose, it has been to show why most... And then there's the Bake Off tent. Then Scottish Conservative leader Ruth Davison won a charity edition of the Great British Bake Off on Channel 4 in 2018, beating the singer Ella Eyre, comedian Tim Minchin and made in Chelsea's Jamie Lang to win a special apron. The job that I do, is it can sometimes be quite scary, but I genuinely don't think I felt as outside my comfort zone if it wasn't for such a good cause, I think when the invitation came in, I would have run a million miles from it. See? Still raw. Still raw. There's a couple of things going on in this. The orange and the chocolate. And they're both delicious. <laughs> oh, no! Oh, yes! yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love it. The texture's just right. That's a nice cake. You can go home happy now. <laughs> I can't. Cheeky Star Baker apron. The winner of the Star Baker apron is the person who didn't loaf about, whose biscuits were perfectly piped and I think this gives it away, and who flew the flag for Ireland. The winner is Ruth. Yay. Speaker, I have noticed that my honourable friend apparently is shortly to appear on a Channel 4 programme called Celebrity First Dates. I'm, um... <laughs> Mr Speaker, what I'm not sure about is whether my honourable friend is the celebrity or the first date. But maybe... Conservative MP Michael Fabricant made an unforgettable appearance on Celebrity First Dates back in 2017, in which he had dinner with the fantasy novelist Jan, but it didn't go very well. Do I recognise you from somewhere? I like to tell people that I'm in Home and Away. <laughs> the beach blonde surfer bum. Yeah, yeah, that's me. You are wearing Boris Johnson's hair. You no, no, <laughs> Boris Johnson wears my hair. I lend it to uh, right. Uh, Michael Fabricant, uh, as a Conservative MP... Why did you decide in uh, 2017 to go on first dates? Well, I'd already been approached, you know, to do other programmes like Big Brother, which I refused to do. I mean, I like my privacy and the idea of being on Big Brother certainly didn't turn me on. I'd also been asked to do I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. But uh, the problem with that meant that I wouldn't have been able to be in the House of Commons. Could have got into trouble with the whips, which, of course, is what happened to Nadine Doris. And look what happened to her. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yes, why did I agree to do it? It was for charity. It was for a cancer charity. And uh, I thought it was a nice thing to do, a bit of fun. And so uh, you, you turn up uh, at the restaurant to meet Jan, a fantasy novelist. Mm. What was funnier was earlier they uh, had a meeting with me to discuss, you know, my, my uh, preferences in uh, men and women. And uh, we decided to opt for women. And uh, I told them the sort of woman I find very attractive. And I have to say they chose the complete opposite. Right. So it didn't get off to the best of starts. And then she uh, passed comment on your appearance. Yes, she did. But it was interesting, though. I'm going to let everyone into a secret. You see, 
we were getting on reasonably well. It was a bit awkward because I didn't have much in common with her. I mean, she's a nice enough person and I've seen her since, uh, though not romantically, I hasten to add. Um, and we were getting on okay. And then a floor manager came up to me and said, oh, there's a problem with your microphone, Michael. Can we just take you away from your table to adjust your microphone? Now, I have to tell you, and you know this, Matt, that I used to work in broadcasting, setting up radio and television stations and being a broadcaster. And I know when there's something wrong with a microphone or not. So there was a lot of fiddling went on, but actually they did nothing. So I thought this is all very suspicious. And of course, as soon as I got back to the table, she started going on immediately and very aggressively about my hair and my appearance. And I was quite taken aback, I must say. But thinking about it, obviously, what they wanted to do was make a bit of spice, got me away from the table. And then they came up to her and must have told her, look, you're getting on far too well. This doesn't make good TV. So she said, uh, she, she remarked about you having a wig. The wig is a bit of a getaway and said to get rid of it. And you were a bit taken aback by that. Well, I, I do think it's not uh, normal conversation <laughs> over, uh, you know, making personal it's remarks. It's an unusual chat-up line, I'll give her that. No, it was something a bit different. I mean, she was a bit sort of uh, strange anyway, but going on about my hair and suggesting it's a wig. And I, in the end, I got so fed up with it because she kept going on and on and on. I mean, it was relentless. It was like the Battle of the Bulge. So in the end, I decided to make a remark about her bulge. And I said, look, I'm not going to make any comment about your boobs if you don't make any comment about my hair. I mean, it was not one of the better moments in my social life, I have to say. And so has this put you off doing any other um, reality TV? Probably not doing reality TV. I think it will put me off doing dating shows. So, you know, I wasn't really interested in uh, finding true love, in inverted commas. I've already got some good relationships. I'll tell you what was remarkable about that whole thing, though. They wanted me to go with a bloke. So I said to them, look, I'll go with a woman, but I want to say that I'm bi because I don't want people to think that I'm being cheating or anything. Anyway, so I did all this and the, the, the producers were going, oh my God, it's wonderful. We've never had an MP saying they're bi before. I mean, I couldn't believe their excitement in all this. But what was funny was the following week after the programme had been shown, I went back to the House of Commons, you know, expecting people to come up to me and say, oh my God, you came out as being bisexual. Um, in fact, all they could talk about was the choice of my partner and how beastly she'd been to me. And really, if I'd been in that position once, said, you know, I'd have just burst into tears. So I thought that was nice. The world has moved on a bit. That was Michael Fabricant talking about his hair-raising experiences on first dates. Uh, thank you to all of the, uh, the politicians who shared their stories. And thanks to the BBC, ITV and Channel 4 for letting us take a trip down memory lane. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon.
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.